Today's scripture is from Acts 1, verses 1 to 11. If you have your Bible with you, feel free to read along. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up to the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Ben and Miranda, uh, for leading us in worship. I wasn't going to do this, but um, if they were leading us in that song about come all over thirsty and those who thirst for God, it reminded me this past week as a leadership team, uh, sorry, as a staff team, we were taking the uh, week away just to pray and be offline. And the scripture Dave gave us to pray through was Isaiah 55, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And as I was praying this week, I just had this deep sense that Jesus is inviting those who are thirsty to him. And here's what's beautiful about Isaiah 55. It doesn't say there's a prerequisite to who should be thirsty or who should come. There's just this deep invitation. If you are thirsty and hungry and longing for Jesus to fulfill you and meet with your deep longing in your soul, then you are invited. And so if that feels like you, that is this season. It's interesting, as I was thinking about this theme of water, later on in the Gospels, Jesus meets with a Samaritan woman and says, I have water that you can only dream of, you know nothing about, and it's here for you like a well that springs up. So in this season, if we are thirsty, Jesus is just inviting us more to himself to quench that thirst. That's a whole nother sermon for another day. And St. Clair staff team will be sharing a bunch of what we've been thinking about as we've been praying this past week. But if you're here with us this morning, we're actually starting a new series called Reimagine Church. We recognise that the church in this season looks different in many ways to how it has done over the last few years. Things are changing in the world because of COVID-19 and in many ways that has changed how the church meets. Only in January we were meeting in our building, having Sunday gatherings and now I'm live streaming from my living room. So 
it's obvious the church is different in this moment. I would want to say the vision of St. Clair hasn't changed. In fact, maybe it's more poignant than ever that we're called to make disciples of Jesus by living as a family on mission. But as we know in this season, some of the forms are changing. We can't meet on a Sunday as we have done historically, and we actually don't know when we'll go back to meeting in person again on a Sunday morning. But in this season, how do we actually move forward and reimagine what the church might be? I was reading recently the story of the poet David White, who uh, I'm, I love deeply, and he says, In his youth, he was hiking through the Himalayas and he came across on his hike this deep chasm and he realized the only way forward over this chasm was a rickety old rope bridge that had many different slats missing in it. He says he was a confident mountaineer, but he suddenly froze and that the prospect of traversing this abyss was so treacherous, he didn't know how to move forward. He said that he sat on the ground for a few hours and just stared at the bridge. And then he said this, There are times when the hero has to sit down. At some bridges in life, the part of you that always gets it done has to sit down. I wonder if for us in the West, that's a bit of a call as well. We've done church and we've always got church done and we keep going with this action. But in this season, being invited by God to actually ask him, how do we move across this future? And maybe maybe some ways the abyss that David White talked about. It seems similar to Moses at the Red Sea where he knew he was meant to cross this water, but how he was going across maybe looked different to what he anticipated. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts together and asking what can we learn from the early church, not just to copy exactly what they did, because the spirit always breathes in different contexts in history. But how do we learn from the church, the early church, what it means for us now to live this out in Hamilton, Ontario? I wanted to call the series Back to the Future, but that's an old movie reference that not everyone else would get. Maybe Brian Dexter. I know you love that movie. But I wanted to look back to how the church lived and how we may look at how we can move forward. The question we want to look at over this series and during the midweek, uh, Dave and I will be sending out an extra bit of teaching on what it means theologically to understand the vision of the church. But the question we want to look at is who is the church? See, that's an important question. Not just what does the church do, but who actually is the church? See, in the New Testament, over and over, the church is described by who we are, not just the things that we do. See, if we say the word church to most people, maybe even ourselves who are in the church, the first response is to talk about our Sunday gathering. If someone says, what's your church like? We'll talk about the music or the preaching or the welcome we receive or the coffee that we have. But that's like saying to you, tell me about your family. Who is your family? And your first response is to talk about the dinner that you have on Monday night. See, the gatherings that we have are important, but maybe not as important as important as asking who were we actually meant to be. There's a lot of debate in our culture at the moment about reopening the church. But I would say the church is never closed because we are the church, the people 
Now, our gatherings have changed, and I'll be honest, I really miss our Sunday mornings of being with you and interacting with you when I look out and see your lovely smiling faces looking back at me. And so I really miss and grieve our Sunday gatherings. But in this season, what if Jesus is asking us to reimagine his vision for who the church is? The word church in the original language is the word ecclesia, which literally means the called out ones. Those people who are called out by Jesus to be with him and then represent him to the world. So over the next few weeks, Dave and I are going to be looking at different themes from the book of Acts and asking what we can learn from the early church. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter one. And the theme for this morning, I've called it, is patient power. When we look at Acts chapter one, When we look at Acts chapter 1, we find that um, the church themselves are going through a transition. We find that the disciples and the early church in this transition of Jesus going to be with the Father and they are left. So Jesus being resurrected. The disciples finally have Jesus back and now he's going to be with the Father. And so they're in this place of asking, what does the future look like? They're in a time of transition and I'm sure in many ways there's anxiety that is invoked in that. They're also grieving the fact Jesus is leaving them. I think when we look forward and maybe some of us are excited about the how the church is going to be. In many ways, we have to grieve what we're leaving behind. I think that's the same when we look upon our lives. The way we knew life, how the life was, will actually be different. And there's a grieving process that we have to undertake with that. And so the disciples are grieving losing Jesus, but he is instructing them on what the next stage looks like. This is how Acts chapter 1 starts out. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken to heaven. So this is Luke writing the book of Acts. He's written his gospel. And now he's saying in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That's an important word. So what he's saying here is Jesus was teaching and living. And now the continuation of that is this book. And so the early disciples and the early followers of Jesus are called to carry on the life and the ministry of Jesus. In its most basic form, the church is a group of people centered around Jesus who will live and do what Jesus did. That might seem really basic to many of us, but I think so often we forget that. So if we look at the church today, would we say first and foremost, oh, they're a community that look like Jesus and do what Jesus did. The early writer Cyprian, writing about the early church, said that the way the church lived their lives was the greatest witness to who Jesus was. He had this line where he said, we do not speak great things, we live them. Acts 1 continues. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Jesus takes 40 days post-resurrection to be with his disciples and talk about the kingdom, because that was always the central message of Jesus. God's rule and reign, the kingdom of God, is here and now. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus says, the time has come, the kingdom of God 
is at hand. And the kingdom of God is where God's rule and reign comes to heal all that is broken. Paul says in Colossians 1 that it's the reconciliation of all things, not just the spiritual world, but actually the material world as well. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse four, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, wait for the gift that is coming. My presence is coming to you as a gift from the father. But I want you to wait. It's interesting that the disciples' first movement here was a movement of obedience, not to rush out, but to wait. I think it's Mike Pilavachi who says, obedience is the love language, the kingdom. When we hear what Jesus is saying, will we actually put it into practice? And so the first instruction of the disciples isn't to go out, but it's to wait for the spirit. I've been reading a book by Alan Crider, which has an amazing title. It's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And in that book, he says patience is one of the central virtues of the people of God. He says lots of the early Christian writers wrote about the importance of patience. And he says this was a characteristic of the church because God himself is patient. We see that in the book of Psalms. I love that line. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. And this is what Alan Crider says. God in dealing with Israel across the centuries was never in a hurry. God's mission is unhurried and unstoppable. Patience is a distinctive sign of a Christian because patience is the characteristic of God. And we see that throughout the scripture, whether it's Noah in the Old Testament having to wait around 100 years from the time he's told to build a boat until the flood actually comes. We see that in Moses's life of being in the desert of Midian for 40 years. We can see that in the journey of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. We see that in the life of David, where he's anointed to be king by Samuel, and it takes him around 20 years until he's finally on the throne. We see 300 years of silence between the prophets declaring the Messiah's coming and then Jesus arriving. And then even in the life of Jesus himself, if you think about it, the Messiah is finally here. And what happens? Nine months for Jesus to be born in Mary's stomach. It takes nine months to the, for the Messiah to actually come. And then when he arrives, 30 years for him to start his earthly ministry. See, I think patience is important because the process is important to God. What God wants to do in us is always part of what he wants to do in the world. When I was younger, or maybe even when I was in my 20s, I thought I was really patient. And then I had children and I realized how impatient I actually was. And I've realized looking around that actually our culture breeds impatience. It is just the water that we swim in. 
This week, Jen and Faith made this amazing bread. It was an apple cinnamon loaf. And it was really funny because I wanted to have some with my coffee and I kept coming down and saying to Jen, is the bread ready yet? And this is what Jen said to me, making good bread just takes time. I think it's the same with discipleship. Being formed into the image of Christ just takes time. Paul says in Galatians, I'm in the pains of childbirth, and he has this word, until Christ is formed in you. My spiritual director, Brenda, said to me recently, Matt, I was in one of those moments of just pouring out my heart to her and all the struggles I was going through. And she said, you need to trust in the long, slow work of love. Now, when I talk about patience, I don't think patience actually means passivity. I think patience is actually the time of preparation. The poet Rilke says we need to be patient to all that's unresolved within us. And what we notice is in the early church, the patience is a time of preparation. See, Jesus sends them back, says, wait for the Holy Spirit. But this is what it says in verse 14. They all join together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. See, they went back and while they were waiting, they were praying. The church has always been a praying people. And as we wait patiently for God to work, prayer is the thing we're always called to. In reading this book about the patient ferment, Alan Crider talks about so many early Christians were seeing prayer as the central vocation of the church. He even said more than the sermon in their Sunday gatherings. He said three early writers wrote treaties on prayer. This is what he goes on to say. Justin said that newly baptized believers were introduced to the community at the time of prayer. This is not accidental for the prayer time was the power center of early Christian worship. Oregon, when writing about prayer, said the prayer also led to the believers taking care of the most vulnerable He said believers rich and poor would stand so close together in prayer, they would overhear each other's prayers. And because of what they heard, they would engage in acts of mutual aid, meeting the needs of others. So as we wait, we pray and in prayer, it actually leads us to respond and primarily take care of the most vulnerable. If the church is anything, it's a place where we care for the most vulnerable. And that's even more our call in this next season. So we see in the early church that they're a community of patience, but also they're a community of power. This is what uh, Acts chapter 1 says, verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom to Israel? I even love the disciples' impatience. Like, is this the time? Is this the time? And Jesus, as he normally does, does something really annoying. He doesn't seem to answer their question. He says this. It's not for you to know the times or dates, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says you need to wait Because there's a gift that's coming and it is my Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will come in power. 
The word for power here is the word dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite from. And so Jesus is saying there's a presence that is coming to you that will show you how to live the kind of life that I was living. It's telling you how to bear witness to me in the world. As I was reading this, it had such imagery of Genesis chapter one, that God creates humankind. And it says God breathed life into humanity in the beginning, as we see with the Holy Spirit. And then as God breathed life into humankind, he says, now be my image bearers that represent me to the world. See, when we receive the power of the Holy Spirit, when we follow Jesus, it gives us the power to live the life Jesus was living. That means the character and the fruit of the Spirit. It allows us to practice the presence of God every day, to be aware of his presence around us. But it also empowers us to do the kind of things Jesus was doing, praying for the sick, casting out demons and preaching good news. Dion Moody says the work of the Spirit is to impart life and to implant hope. Jesus is clear that we're to be sent into the world to do the things Jesus was doing. But he first says you need to wait. That to me is one of the most addressing parts of this chapter. See, I would imagine Jesus would say the Holy Spirit's coming, so it's going to come now and you need to get out there. See, I think in the Western church, myself included, we're so driven by having to do more and more. Try harder Christianity. I was speaking to my friend Joe, who's an older, wiser follower of Jesus. He's one of those people who just says the odd one line and it takes you a while to just contemplate what he says. And I was talking to him last week and he said, Matt, there's an overwhelming ambient anxiety for the church in the West that we are never doing enough and Jesus wants to free us from that I was thinking about how we just want to get out there and do things and then when things don't go well our next response is how do we strategize and plan about how we maybe could do that better what we rarely do is wait and say Holy Spirit what are you saying would you come and fill us I said recently to a friend that I've spent so much of my Christian life as a pastor driven by adrenaline rather than abiding. I was listening to a pastor talk about his church. It's very missional. They're involved in justice initiatives in the community uh, with local government and food banks and schools. And someone said to him, what is the lesson you learned from the first few years of pastoring this church plant? And he said, I learned that we need to rely on the spirit more. And most of the time it was our hard work that was trying to get things done. And when the Holy Spirit comes on his people, we'll look, we'll look at that next week on Pentecost Sunday. We realize that the Holy Spirit comes on all of the people in the upper room, not just the apostles. It comes on everyone and sends them out to do the ministry of Jesus. For many of us, we disqualify ourselves, but the Holy Spirit comes on all of us in exactly the same way to fill us. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. I'm going to say that again because even as I say it, I know some of you are thinking, I don't know, and even myself, I'm trying to question that. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Annie Dillard has this amazing quote, and 
I'm just going to share this with you because it so struck me this week around the power of the spirit. And it was so beautiful. She's such a brilliant writer. And this is what she says. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one actually believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT every Sunday. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake some day and take offence. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares because the spirit is being poured out and God's people are now empowered to go and live for God in the world. See, what we read about over and over in the book of Acts is the book of Acts isn't myth and legend, but the story of how the church was birthed. And in this season, I believe God is actually coming in a new way to empower the body of Christ like never before. In the New Testament, we see this language of the priesthood of all believers. And I think it's unclear that is the next season of our journey. The Holy Spirit is coming upon us and he's asking us to step into new areas where we can be ambassadors of reconciliation and share the spirit of what God is doing with others. We'll talk more about this, but this week as I was praying for our community, this image of water kept coming to mind. And it's as if we've been looking to go to this well and pointing everyone saying, go to this well, which often represents the church. You need to go and take your bucket there. And Jesus is saying, oh, there's a life that's within you and you are now to be a well that's poured out for others and people who are thirsty. As you have a couple of closing thoughts, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to transition into communion. There were just three phrases that I felt God impress on me this week as we think about this series in the book of Acts. The first is the phrase, it's presence, not programs. I believe that God would want to say to us that in this next season of St. Clair's life, it's not about running lots of different programs. In fact, we've never really been a program driven church, but it's about paying attention to the presence of God and allowing the presence of God to lead us in our everyday life. The second one is a season of participation, not passivity. See, the days of looking to the expert and asking them to lead people is over. I think Jesus is inviting each of us as the church to say, now is your time to step into your identity as children beloved by me, empowered by the Spirit. And also, I think it's a movement in this next season away from preference to necessity. So I think a lot of the times in the last season of church, we've kind of done things and said, well, I kind of prefer this bit or I like this bit. I'm not comfortable in this size group, but I like this. And I think Jesus would say it's necessity that in this season we love each other and even step beyond the boundaries of our own comfort because the world needs us and the body of Christ needs us. We may be stretched and forced into new places that might make us uncomfortable, but the Spirit is with us and will entrust us. Our preferences are pushed away because of the necessity and need of the church and the world around us.
Teresa of Avila says this, when one reaches the highest degree of human maturity, one has only one question left. How can I be helpful? So when we move out of our preference, we actually start to ask, how do I help others because they need me at this time? It's my prayer that as we look in this series in the book of Acts, we will be reminded of the patient work of God that has always been there in the church. But as we wait and are patient with God, we are filled with the Holy Spirit that empowers us and sends us out into the world to be witnesses of the glory and beauty of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Jesus, we wait for you. And we say the prayer that has always been prayed by the church, come Holy Spirit. Would you fill us? Would you empower us to live the way you've called us to live? In this season, as we imagine what the church might be, would we follow you in new ways? As we sit and ponder, like David White said, where we need to sit down, would we listen to your spirit and then be led into new places that you're calling us into? Holy Spirit, we need you. We don't want to do this work without you. Amen.